Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. I, I saw a quote uh, a while ago by one of my favorite authors, um, Tim Keller, and he said the vast majority of people who don't believe in Christianity have radically inaccurate views of what Christianity is. But I want to add to that and say that even a lot of people who do believe in Christianity have some <laughs> radically inaccurate ideas about what Christianity is. Or let me put it a different way. Many people who have rejected Christianity have rejected their misconception of what Christianity is. And many people who have accepted Christianity have actually accepted a misconception of what Christianity is. And what I want to do today is just look at that a bit um, if you look at history, one of the great questions and one of the almost mysteries of history is why did the early church choose the cross as their main symbol? Why did the early church choose the cross as their main symbol? Let me explain that. I mean, if you look at all the other, without exception, all the other great leaders of world religions, they all died old and successful, except Jesus, it seems, okay? Moses died at the age of 120, old and full of years, after leading the children of Israel from captivity in Egypt to the border of the promised land. Buddha died at about 80 years of age after um, achieving enlightenment and amassing a large following. Muhammad died somewhere in his 60s, but um, only after um, amassing great wealth, many followers and wives, and, uh, <laughs> and conquering all his enemies, and uniting the whole of Arabia under one kingdom and one religion, under one rule and one religion. And in stark contrast to all of that, Jesus died at the age of 33, Naked, on a cross, deserted by all his friends and family, and seemingly a huge failure. And the cross was a, was a terrible way to die. It really it wasn't just an execution. It was, it was being tortured to death. And you hung there naked, so it was shameful. It was terrible. Um, and you have to, I have to ask the question, why did the early church, despite ridicule from the society around them, choose that very symbol of that terrible, shameful death and take that and make it their main symbol? Why? It needs some explanation. And uh, I want to read you um, a little portion of scripture from Luke chapter 22 where I think Jesus gives us some explanation of it. Um, obviously, I won't in an evening like this be able to give a full explanation, but maybe I can give, you, give us some ideas and we can find from this text some pointers in the right direction. So I'm going to read from Luke 22, from verse 14. I'm reading from the NIV. It says, uh, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, 
I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup and giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do, who would do this. Also, also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it, is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to, and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And um, interesting portion of scripture. Just one, one thing, just sort of in a sense, by the way, and as a, as a preparation that I want to note, is you have this very intense moment where Jesus is instituting uh, it's during the Passover when Jesus is instituting communion or the Lord's Supper. And he's talking, in effect, about his death. And here the apostles start arguing about who's the greatest. I mean, can you believe it? <laughs> Jesus in this vulnerable moment, and they start arguing, no, 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 I'm the greatest. No, 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 I'm the best. And what that shows us, or just one thing that, that I want to highlight from that, that that shows us, is that surely this is, must have been true. This, this must really have happened. I mean, it's those same apostles who were arguing about who was the greatest and desperately embarrassing themselves who actually wrote this. And if they were inventing a religion afterwards, I mean, surely they would have invented something that made them as the new leaders of this religion look slightly better and a bit less like idiots. <laughs> so that's what scholars call the criteria of embarrassment you know if 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 the authors put in something that's that embarrassing then it must be true you know the, the only reason that they would have put it in is if it's actually true because it really makes them look bad um, so what i'm trying to say is we can actually we can actually trust this this is historically credible even even um even people who are not christians would look at that and say well historically this looks pretty credible i mean there's there's no you know, something that's invented doesn't sound like that. People who invent things about themselves usually invent things that make them look slightly better. Okay, so we're going to look at three things. 
um, we said the cross of Jesus needs an explanation. And I'm just going to look at a few explanations in this passage. Firstly, there's the explanation of historic pattern, then of uh, the, the explanation of prophetic prediction, the explanation of a contrast community. I'm going to explain all this as I go along. And then finally, the explanation of a changed individual or a changed life. So let's look at that in a bit more detail. Firstly, the, the um, explanation of a historic pattern. The occasion of Jesus' explanation of, uh, is the Passover. I mentioned there in verse 15, which is the annual commemoration of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. They were oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They were enslaved. And Moses led them out of Egypt and towards the promised land, as I already mentioned. But on the eve of their departure, they were supposed to slaughter a lamb and have, have a meal around it as families. And they ate bread, they, drink, they drank wine, um, as, as they did um, annually uh, after that. And they ate the lamb. And they did it in their sandals and with their sticks in their hands, ready for the deliverance, the exodus that God had promised. And Jesus chooses this occasion uh, to, explain, <coughs> to explain his own death. So what would happen was the, out, the head of the family would preside over the Passover meal. And they did, Jews still do this every year. And they, they did it every year um, after uh, the exodus. And he would explain, he'd read some scriptures, and then the youngest usually um, in the family would ask a question, why is this night, or what makes this night different from every other night? And then the, the, the head of the family who was presiding over the ceremony would, would use it as an, as an opportunity to answer the question and say, well, on this night, our forefathers uh, went out of Egypt. Uh, God delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and brought them through the desert to the promised land. And Jesus uses this occasion uh, to explain. And... In, in this sense, Jesus is sitting at this Passover meal and he's presiding over the ceremony and he's giving the explanation for this Passover meal. But it must have been very surprising to his Jewish disciples who had from their childhood sat every year through a Passover meal because the explanation that Jesus gives is very different. Firstly, we see that Jesus, from Luke's Gospel, I'm not going to read it now, but in Luke 9 verse 31 Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Moses and Elijah, the very same Moses who related the Exodus, appears to him. And Jesus said, and, and they start talking about, and the NIV says, his departure, which he must accomplish in Jerusalem. But if you're going to look at the Greek word, it actually says his Exodus, which he must accomplish. Exodus in, in, the, in, the, in the Greek. And Jesus is doing nothing other, and he's saying the same with this Passover meal than accomplishing a new exodus. In fact, the ultimate exodus. Jesus came to Jerusalem to lead an exodus. And when he explains it, he says, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I do it in the kingdom of God. So he says, unlike the original Passover meal, which is annually done in order to remember the past, this new Passover meal actually points to the future. But then comes the big thing. As part of the Passover meal, they would eat the bread, and the, the head of the family would say, this is the bread of their affliction, 
which they experienced, the, all the affliction of slavery that they experienced in Egypt. And Jesus, when he gives them the bread, he says, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body, which is broken for you. And that must have really surprised the disciples because it's so different. The historic pattern of the Exodus is there, but Jesus, in very significant ways, deviates from them. And that brings us to our second point. Not only is there the historic pattern of the Passover, there's also the prophetic predictions of Jesus. Jesus and the Bible as a whole um, give astonishingly accurate and numerous predictions of, firstly, how he would die. In, in just, if you look in this passage, he says, this is my body broken for you. Okay, so he said his body would be broken. Secondly, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is my blood that is shed for you. So my blood will be shed. He says, I, in, in verse 15, I, I, I've greatly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. My death will not only be my body being broken, my blood being shed, but me suffering. And, and it's interesting that he says, I've greatly desired to eat this meal with you before I suffer. Because he knew that they would be able to look at his suffering. In fact, most people in the natural will look at it and say, this is a dismal defeat. Many would have looked at it, who, who, who trusted in Jesus, and turned away and said, well, if this is God's plan, I don't believe anymore. And they would have turned away thinking that it was a massive defeat. And Jesus obviously knew that that temptation was, was there. And that's why I had this great desire to explain his suffering at the hand of the Passover. But all of this is prediction. I mean, I'm not going to read it now, but in Psalm 22, there's a place where it says, uh, you know, the bulls have surrounded me, they, they, they mock me, they stare at me, and then it says they've pierced my hands and my feet. Now, that was written by David a thousand years before Christ. A thousand years before Christ. And it doesn't only say they killed me. It says they pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand before Christ. Hundreds of years before the Romans even perfected the art of crucifixion. The prophet David already foresaw it. And the Bible has a lot to say about how Jesus would die. Jesus himself has a lot to say about how he would die. Let me just read you one. Just go to the very last um, the very last slide, I have a um, yeah, scripture up there. Jesus, uh, this is earlier, as he's traveling to Jerusalem. And this is one of many examples. And he says, uh, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, you are going, we are going to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. In other words, it's been hundreds of years ago predicted what will happen. Written down. Some people say, when they look at, at the predictions and they look at how Jesus fulfilled it, they say, no, this, this is not possible. We know that you cannot predict the future that accurately. It must have been written after Jesus fulfilled it. <laughs> Made up. The only problem is that whole Old Testament, including all those predictions, were already in 250 before Christ translated into Greek as the Septuagint. So we, we have copies of it, you know, and, and we even have um, copies, even Hebrew copies that predate Jesus. So we, we know... It was written hundreds of years before Christ by the prophets. And then he says, he, the Son of Man, Jesus speaking of himself in the third person, he will be handed over to the Gentiles and they will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. Now, notice the, how 
how particular and how specific he is. He doesn't just say they will kill him. He says they will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and was beat him with a cat of nine tails, and then kill him. That's very specific. That's not just general predictions that possibly could come true. And it happened exactly, exactly as he said. But more important than how Jesus would die, he predicts why he would die. He tells us why he would die. And he says it twice in this passage. He says, this is my body. He takes the bed, breaks it, and gives it to them and says, this is my body given for you. He takes the cup and says, this is my blood poured out for you. And in um, the English translation, it says for you, because we don't really have a better preposition to translate the, the, the Greek preposition there is, is hooper which literally means on behalf of or instead of. This is my body given instead of you. This is my blood given on behalf of or instead of you. And what Jesus is, is telling us um, with that is that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved for our sins in our stead, in our place, on behalf of us. And I probably need to explain that now. Uh, many, many people don't understand, I mean, why, why, what punishment? Why, who, who does God want to punish and why does he want to punish us, you know? Um, and, and the reality is God is a, a holy God as given by his law. I mean, all of us know the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me, etc. So shall not lie, shall not steal, shall not murder. And I mean, all of us agree that, you know, those are pretty good laws. I mean, just imagine a society where everyone's allowed to lie or to steal or to murder or to, you know, whatever. Um, it wouldn't be a good society. So it's, it's like common sense, you know, that it's, these are good laws. Um, and we even teach our children to keep them. Right? But God says we must keep these laws not only externally but internally in our hearts. And who of us have really done that? See, we don't really think about this because it's a bit uncomfortable. But if you think about it, I mean, who of us has not told a lie? Okay, anyone who has not told a lie, put up their hand. Wendy. <laughs> Are you lying to us? <laughs> or, I mean, who has not coveted, you know, or lusted after someone? The Bible doesn't just say you shall not commit adultery, but Jesus says... You have heard it says you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at a woman to lust after, you've committed adultery in your heart. I mean, is there anyone who has not done that in their life? And the point is, we think it's okay if we keep some of the laws some of the times. Or we feel really good about ourselves if we keep most of the laws most of the times. But God requires us to keep all of the laws all of the time. And none of us has done that. And therefore, all of us stand guilty before God. We have firstly sinned against him. Every sin that we've done, every sin of commission that we've 
perpetrated and every sin of omission where we fail to do what we're supposed to do, we've done against God and we've denigrated his honor. And that's why Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All stand guilty before God. But also we do things that are not in our best interest, that's not good for us and the people around us. We hurt ourselves and bring ourselves into captivity. Just like the, the um, Israelites were slaves in Egypt, we become slaves to sin. And as mentioned last week, um, our sin causes us to see our sin as not as bad as it really is. I mean, we make excuses for it and we say, no, you know, I'm actually a decent person. I'm not that bad. But Jesus says he died instead of us. He gave his body and his blood in our stead, on our behalf, to, to receive what we should have received. So there's that prophetic prediction. And, and just by the way, the Bible is the only book that has that kind of prophetic, that kind of specific prophetic prediction that is fulfilled in that manner. Um, and then not only is there the evidence of this prophetic prediction, but also of a contrast community. The cross actually creates, and Jesus' death on the cross creates a new community that would stand in stark contrast to the rest of society. And I just want to mention three things that that community will look like. Firstly, it'll be an intimate family. Secondly, a radical society. And thirdly, um, this is a big word, sorry, a reverse meritocracy. I'm going to explain it. Don't worry. Don't worry. Firstly, intimate family. Why intimate family? I mean, something that's not explicitly mentioned in the text, but that's implied in the text. The Passover took place in homes by families. And it was the head of the family that led the Passover ceremony, right? And here Jesus has his apostles in Jerusalem, not with their families. Their families were probably somewhere in Galilee, keeping the Passover that evening. And Jesus had taken them away from their families and was getting them together in a house in order to have the Passover. And what Jesus is actually saying with this is actually very powerful. I mean, just think about how powerful, how strong, and how, just how, in, in many ways, wonderful family ties are. There's a bond between families that, that is truly special, that, that is unlike any other relationship. Even if, even if your family drives you crazy, you still love them, and, and they still have a special place in your heart. And, and it's like, even if you don't see them all that often, every time you see them, it's something really special. It's like there's a, just a connection and, a, and a, an understanding. And it's because of all the shared experience of growing up together, being in the same house, seeing one another, even on your bad hair days, even when your best foot is not forward. Really knowing each other. And Jesus is saying that he's the cross, his blood, actually creates a family that is even more intimate than that. Because if you experience the cross, you have an experience that's even more powerful than all the years of experience that draws normal families together. And where normal families, is, it's not just the blood, you know, blood is thicker than water, that kind of thing, that draws families together. It's that shared experience. And it's the shared experience of the cross. And Jesus making that part of us that draws us as families together. And I'm not trying to water down the importance of family. All I'm trying to say is that Jesus is saying that his new family is even more powerful. The link is even more powerful. And, and just think about this. Jesus is actually saying, I mean, this is really audacious. He's actually saying that if two people from radically different ethnic backgrounds, radically different socioeconomic uh, economic backgrounds, 
radically different cultures both experience the cross. That experience of the cross actually draws them closer together than people who grew up in the same house. That's a powerful statement. And that is what the kind of community, first and foremost, that the cross creates. It creates an intimate family. Secondly, it creates a radical society. Because Jesus also says, um, I confer a kingdom on you just like my father conferred a kingdom on me. Now, what does he mean by that? A kingdom implies a new society. But notice how the society is different. You know, he says... First to the disciple, when they're arguing about who's the greatest, he's saying, you guys are being just like the rest of society now. You know, the, 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 the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over one another, and um, he, he mentions, he says, um, uh, and those who have exercised authority over them call themselves benefactors. And then he says, but you are not to be like that. You are supposed to be a contrast community. So he says... In, in normal society, it's all about power, gaining power and exercising power and control. And he says, people who exercise authority call themselves benefactors. Now, I know in the last couple of years, we've had, a, a South Africa have had a painful experience about this, uh, about those exercising power for their own benefit. The word benefactors actually means the patronage system, which was very common in those days. And in fact, it was quite accepted. Uh, powerful people would do favors for people who are poor or powerless, but in return, they expected um, complete loyalty. And the, poor, the, the person, the benefactor, would, would, would do a favor, but then he'd say, but then you, you ex- in a sense, owe your life to me. So, so you must win honor for me in the way that you talk to the people around you. You must, you must make me look great. And um, if there's ever anything I need, I can, I can call on you. It's a bit like the Godfather, okay? <laughs> it's like the mafia, you know? The Godfather will do favors for you, but he's going to call in that favor at some stage. Now, it, it worked like that, patronage system. And we saw our own Godfather, um, ex-president Jacob Zuma, you know, basically doing something similar, you know? And he had this whole system of patronage. And, 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 and all of South Africa is coming out now with this state capture commission, um, but that was commonplace. But the reality, I mean, we look at that and we, and we, we judge it and we, and rightly and say it's wrong and it's harmful and it's selfish. Without realizing, to some extent, we all actually do that if we're not careful. We all want to relate to the people that will benefit us. We want to be with the pretty people, or we want to be with the successful people, or we want to be with the rich people, or we want to be, you know, fill in the blank. Or we, we, we're quite happy to help people, but as long as there are people who would one day be able to help us as well. Isn't that so? That's how society works. In other words, we look at this old benefactor thing and we judge it rightly, not realizing that we are often guilty of it ourselves. The society as a whole on a very more on a much milder scale, is guilty of it. And Jesus says, it should not be so amongst you. In other words, he says, if you experience the cross, then you are not only going to relate to people that will benefit you. If you experience the cross, the cross creates a community of people who will not only help those who will be able to help them, will be able to, where, where there will be a payoff at some stage. That's the kind of community that the cross creates. And then, not only that, but um, 
like I said, a reverse meritocracy. Just in this last portion where, where Jesus is talking to Peter, Simon Peter, and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan asked you to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that you, your faith might not fail you, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And then Jesus tells him, you know, that very night before the rooster crows, he's going to deny him three times. So <laughs> what Jesus is doing here is he turns to the guy who will become, we know, the leader of this early church community. And he says to him, Peter, it's because of your impeccable record (laughs) and your great courage in the face of adversity that I've chosen you to strengthen your brothers. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Peter, it's in in fact, despite the fact that you're going to betray me, deny me, and let me down terribly. Now it's, you're the least worthy. Now it's in the world, when you're choosing leaders, you look at who's successful. Who, who has the, um, who is the, who, who is the best? Who's the most successful? But in the church, Jesus asked, not who is the most successful, but who's the most repentant? Martin Luther says, the whole of the Christian life is repentance. And Jesus says, When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In other words, the cross creates a community not of perfect people, but of repentant people. Of people who grow not because they're just such great people and they never do anything wrong, but they do things terribly wrong, but they repent and they turn back and they become better because of that. And the cross creates that. Now, you might protest and say, but hang on any, the church certainly isn't always like that. Granted, the church isn't always like that. That's true. But as um, Ravi Zacharias says, don't judge an institution on the abuse of it. Don't judge a faith or a religion on the misrepresentation of it. Yes, the church does often misrepresent Jesus in this. Yes, the church does often disobey Jesus in this. But don't judge the church on that. Judge the church on on what it ought to be and what it can be and what it sometimes is. The reality is, even though the church in under apartheid or part of the church got it desperately wrong and actually justified apartheid, one of the few places in South Africa under apartheid where you did get black and white and every shade of brown in between coming together as real brothers and sisters were in some churches, some Anglican churches, some Pentecostal charismatic churches. Because when the church does get it right, it is this kind of a community, this kind of a contrast community. But not only is, uh, is there the evidence of a contrast, and just by the way, I mean, the, the, the early Ro- Greco-Romans, um, non, uh, you know, people who didn't believe in Christianity saw this, and they were so impressed by it, that in their droves, they joined this community. They looked at this community, was a, this contrast community was an irresistible community of love. And within a couple of generations, Christianity went from a persecuted minority. This is a historic fact. From a persecuted minority to the greatest, the dominant religion in the Greco-Roman Empire. In just a couple of generations. Why? Because this contrast community was so attractive. 
but not only the evidence of a contrast community, but also the in- evidence of a changed individual. And that changed individual is Peter. And many lives have been changed just like Peter's. You know, like Peter, <laughs> we tend to think that we are less sinful than we really are and that we are more committed than we really are. Do you, know you see what he said when Jesus said, you know, um, Satan asks you to sift you like wheat and, you know, you, you, when you've turned back, you know, strengthen your brother. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison or even death for you and with you. See, we tend to think we are less sinful than we are and we tend to think we are more committed than we are, just like Peter. And the reality is, Peter did strengthen his brothers. This weak Peter was so morally weak, was so cowardly and selfish. When a servant girl asked him, but aren't you one of his disciples? He denied three times that he even knows Jesus. Out of completely selfish motives, he was cowardly and weak and had no integrity. But when he did turn, he did strengthen his brothers. And he did lead a movement that literally changed the world. I mean, even in the last century, do you know what the biggest social movement in the last century is? You know what the biggest social movement, it's actually the biggest social movement in the history of the world. It's Pentecostal charismatic Christianity. In the beginning of the 1900s, there were less than 10 million Pentecostal charismatic Christians. At the end of the century, 100 years later, more than 600 million So growth of 600 million people in a 100 years. It's known, even by secular social scientists, as the greatest social movement in the history of the world. No movement has ever grown that fast. Why? Same reason Peter turned around. Jesus said, I prayed for you, I'm going to die for you, and I'm going to be in you. You see... Just notice this, because this is, this is the crux. I want you to see this. This is very important. Everything else, in a sense, was a setup for this. So I can say, tell you this. When Jesus is sitting there at the Passover lamb, at the Passover table, he said, go and prepare the Passover. He said to his disciples, go and prepare the Passover in the upper room. They prepared the Passover. The main course of the Passover ceremony, what was it? The lamb, right? It wasn't the bread or the cup. It was the lamb. And here sits Jesus at the Passover ceremony. There's bread. There's wine. There's all kinds of other stuff. No lamb is mentioned. You say, oh, well, Luke just left that out. Luke was a good historian. If something was really significant, he would have put it in. But the only problem is Mark and Matthew and John, the other gospel writers, also leave it out. Why? There was no lamb on the table because the lamb was sitting at the table. And that's why Jesus said, this bread, broke the bread and said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. I am the lamb. And when he said, take and eat, he was saying, you need to get me in you. You see, even though the cross creates a contrast community, it also creates changed individuals, and therefore it must be personally appropriated. You must eat it. You cannot outsource your eating. Have you realized that? 
You can outsource many other things, but you cannot outsource your eating. You've got to eat for yourself. No one else can eat for you. Only you can eat for you. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving myself to you. You need to eat me. You need to ingest me. You need to take me inside of you. You need to make me part of you. And that's why Peter changed. Because even though he's more sinful and less committed than he thought, Jesus is completely sinless and more committed than we realize. And when Jesus came into Peter, Peter became like Jesus. And he went from... You see, Jesus is... We Peter denied Jesus and betrayed him publicly. Jesus hung on the cross and he never denied Peter. And he stayed faithful to him and he died for Peter. And the point was Jesus was a lot more committed to Peter than Peter was to Jesus. And that's why Peter needed Jesus inside of Peter. So that Peter can become like Jesus. Take, eat. Take, drink. Take my heroic selfless sacrifice and take it into you and let it overcome your cowardly selfishness and become like me. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.